Welcome back to the AP World History Podcast. This week we're looking at the decolonization of the European empires after World War II. Um, we're going to see two waves of this. We're going to see the first wave happen with the Middle East and Asia, so South Asia, Southeast Asia in the 40s and 50s, uh, with some uh, uh, happenings of independence a little bit later than that uh, in, in some cases. And then we're going to see Africa, which is mainly the 50s through the 70s with a lot of them being in the 60s. So we're going to see two waves of this, and we're going to kind of compare what happens uh, with the independence movements in comparison in these these areas. Um, now, we're going to try to break this just into two sections. Um, we're going to look at one that goes into the actual fights uh, for freedom and independence, and then we're going to look at the, um, the countries and the new systems that come about after, after that. So... Uh, that one's going to be probably a little bit longer, uh, the second one there, uh, on what happens with independence afterwards. Uh, but this first one, we're going to take a look at the comparison. And before we dive into that, I just want to set set the scene a little bit here. Um, so this is the second wave of independence movements that we've seen. The first one happened uh, back in the uh, 17th or 18th century going into the 19th century uh, with the Americas gaining uh, independence. So you have the Latin American revolutions, you have the Mexican independence movement, you have the Haitian revolution, you have the American revolution, all those revolutions, and they essentially free that Western world that we've seen um, and talked about. And so uh, they get their freedom, and the Europeans then go and colonize new areas. They get Africa, they start to push into the Middle East after World War I, they take over most all the Middle East after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. So you get these new colonies that they control all in the same light of... Uh, gaining resources, getting markets to go and sell their stuff to uh, as part of the Industrial Revolution. So, by this point now, after World War II, um, or during, a little bit before World War II, if we're talking about India, these regions are looking and going, this isn't a great deal that we're getting. This white man's burden that's supposed to be carried out and really benefit the people, and the Europeans are doing this to help everyone, is not happening. And they're seeing what the Europeans are saying. Things are supposed to be like and going, this is BS. And we should be able to run our own countries and, and run with the ideas that you guys go with. For example, you guys say it's all about democracy, but we don't have any democracies here. You guys are dictating to us what we need to do. And that uh, we should be able to set up our own businesses and do our own stuff. But as soon as we start competing with you guys, you start putting us down pegs. Uh, so... The people are seeing the hypocrisy in things, especially because they're brought to Europe to help fight in World War II, and they see what's going on in the homeland, uh, or their 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 mother country, I guess you could say, and they go, this is ridiculous in how we're being treated. So uh, we see pretty much a unanimous push after this time to uh, get independence uh, from those colonizers. And uh, it's really able to be possible because World War One and World War Two just absolutely wiped out the resources of Europe to go in and uh, really secure these uh, places when they want to rebel. And they go, okay, we're not fighting this fight anymore. We're exhausted from fighting ourselves for about, um, well, about 10 years of fighting between 30 years or so. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're going to give that to you and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna let you go. So... Uh, they don't really want to, and we see resistance to that, but they eventually give in uh, because, one, it's too costly to maintain it, and two, the United States and the Soviet Union are pressuring them to get to get rid of their colonies. So, um, and also the UN is, is there kind of pushing for that too. So then what does this look like? 
Um, we're going to compare two of them. We're going to look at India. Uh, India is probably one of the most famous ones. And we're going to look at South Africa. Uh, the one thing I would say with, with this before we dive into these is um, this doesn't give us necessarily the best idea of what it looked like all over the place, uh, especially in, in Africa and in the Middle East, because these are kind of exceptions uh, when we're talking about these colonized regions. Uh, India had been colonized for a good long while. Uh, India's culture is much different. It's a much larger region than any of the other uh, regions that we would talk about if we were looked at in the independence, the independence movements. And it happens over a really long time. I mean, we can stretch the Indian independence movement all the way back to 1857 or so uh, with the Sepoy Rebellion. Um, it doesn't get really strong until we're talking about the Indian National Congress getting created in the, in the late 1900s, or 1800s, sorry, the 19th century. And um, so it, it's different. Uh, than what I would say the norm was in, in Africa. And South Africa is different than the norm in Africa because you have a major push from white European colonists that are saying, we want to break away. I would say that's almost a little bit more similar to what we saw in the Americas of these westernized people saying, hey, we know this stuff. We can we can be very European-esque and, and be like you guys and, and do this on our own. And they'll be granted their independence partially because of that. So... Uh, it's not like what you're seeing here is the same thing that we see in Ghana or the Congo or any of those places. So um, it's great comparison, but I, again, don't think this is how everything happens. So I'll try to point out some examples uh, of those things uh, as we go throughout this. Um, so uh, let's dive into things here with India. We're going to start there. So India has controlled Britain, or India has controlled Britain, sorry. Britain has controlled India for uh, a, a good long while. They, they started getting their influence in India in the, in the 1700s, um, but uh, they don't really control India until after the fall of the Mughal uh, Empire. And then they start taking over the whole region of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, that whole region. Uh, they control by by this point in history in the in the early 1900s, actually even in the late 1800s. Um, so it's a very diverse region. You've got uh, Islam mixing with Hinduism. You got Sikhs. You got all these different religions that are there. Uh, you've got all these different ethnic groups within India because it's just been a diverse region throughout history because so many migration movements went through there, and that's why we have that caste system. And and don't forget, we got that caste system there of the uh, Brahmins at the top, the religious leaders, then you got the Kshatriyas, then you got the Vaishyas, then you got the Sudras, and then you got the Dalits at the very bottom of all that. Uh, so we got all that stuff going on. The, the, the British didn't get rid of that system. They actually exploited that system, and so uh, it maybe even became stronger than what it was uh, before the Brits came. Now, um, the British people that went there never really assimilated to their culture or the British never forced the the Indians to really assimilate to their culture. So it becomes a, it, it, it never becomes fully British or whatnot. Uh, are there British influences on their culture? Yes. And are there Indian influences on the British culture? Yes. But they, they never fully integrate with each other. It's not like when we look at the American colonies that the Americans are like British and they're saying we are British people rebelling. No, the there's still there's always kind of a separate identity between India or the Indians and um, the Brits. And uh, the biggest thing that that the reason why they're together is because one of the British force to how they exploit people and also how the British connect the whole region. 
uh, with industrialization, they can make these, they have the resources to make roads, they have the resources to make railroads, uh, and connect the whole region together, which hadn't been possible before. When we talk about the empires of India, no one had united all of India before. Uh, we got close with uh, the Mauryans and the Mughals, taking over almost all the way down, um, uh, almost what we would say is all of modern India, but... Uh, they couldn't because of the uh, vast geographic differences, the diversity, and it just made it really tough. So now, uh, let's actually get into the rebellion here, uh, since this has all been kind of background information. Uh, we're going to step back still a little bit to the background information here of going back to the Sepoy Rebellion, which the, the book doesn't talk too much about. But remember, that's a rebellion of... The sepoys are the the soldiers for the British that are British or that are Indian soldiers that are either uh, Muslim or Hindu, and they get upset about the cartridges being lined with grease from either cows or pigs, and that's a really big no-no for both of them, and so they rebel, and you have this huge open rebellion. Uh, Britain squashes it because they're like, oh, this is really bad. We need these resources that we get from India, so they they squash the rebellion uh, at a huge expense, and the crown takes over the territory instead of it being the um, British East India Company's job to run it. And uh, India is, is pacified, but they aren't saying, okay, now we're just going to be a good little British colony and not rebel anymore and not resist. And so what we see happening is uh, the Indians start to mobilize and, and unite under the banner of the Indian National Congress, um, which happens in 1885. And these are Indians that have an English education, they're lawyers, they're journalists, they're teachers, and they're usually of a higher caste. And they're looking at this and saying, hey, you know what, we're on the level of the Brits. We we should be able to be independent. We can run this country just as well, or this region is just as well as, as they are. And um, they're kind of moderate. Uh, again, they've been educated in the West, so they're not extremist groups. They're not going to go and uh, do terrorist acts and stuff like that. Uh, and they're also more based in the cities because, again, they're educated, they're wealthier, they're not going to be rural-based. Rural-based peoples are not going to uh, be a part of this because they'll be less educated. They'll be uh, not necessarily from a lower caste or anything like that, but they won't be as Western-educated as the city ones where the Europeans, the, the British, are hanging out. And uh, there will also be another group that comes in here, uh, which maybe I should leave till later, but I'm going to bring them up now. Uh, and you get the... Uh, Muslim League that comes up later on uh, that's going to be a, a rival but also an ally in this and that uh, later on you'll get the Muslims banding together because the Indian National Congress will be primarily Hindu um, again because of that higher caste thing and um, the values that go with that that bring them together so the uh, uh, Muslim League um, will rise up under a guy named Nehru uh, and become powerful at the time of uh, the actual independence and will help be a, a another organization that helps do this. And again, these guys are going to be in similar situations of the lawyers, the journalists, the, the uh, Muslims in the country that have been Western educated and try to push um, the Western ideas back against the British to get their independence. And uh, we're going to see this cause a slight issue when Indi independence comes to India uh, with the rivalries that will come between these two two groups, although they'll unite for the common cause under, under Gandhi, who we're going to get to in a second. Um, what else do I want to say about those two things? Um, yeah, so uh, let's dive into things then with Gandhi. 
So Gandhi, uh, he he's not originally part of the Indian National Congress. Uh, that's not his goal to be a part of. He doesn't do that right away. But he was a lawyer. Uh, maybe not one of the best lawyers ever, uh, but he was a lawyer nonetheless. And so he's educated. He knows British law and uh, Indian law and all that stuff that's going in there. Um, and uh, he first gets his start kind of going down to South Africa where there are a lot of Indians through migrant labor and uh, fights for their rights because of the racism going on in South Africa, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But the whole apartheid thing um, before apartheid was actually the law uh, was going on there. So he tried to fight for Indian rights there. And um, so he, he started doing some resistance techniques there eventually. Uh, but he, he doesn't really have a significant impact on South Africa in changing those conditions. Uh, he eventually comes back to India and thinks about things, joins the Indian National Congress, but also um, will start to push for independence uh, and going beyond what the uh, Indian National Congress did and in, in not just being the elites, but also go to the commoners and bring in the Dalits and Shudras and other lower castes because that's where your numbers are. Uh, you're not going to overthrow the government with your just your upper class. You need to bring in the, the masses to this to really put the pressure on the British. And so... Um, to do this, he brings in this, uh, he creates this new philosophy that's called the uh, Satyagraha, or Satyagraha, I think uh, is how you say it. Um, but uh, it's the truth force, and it's the idea that um, you should be using peaceful, nonviolent protests um, and be confrontational in what you're doing, but you're not going to go and try to beat people up and be violent. The goal is to avoid that stuff. Um, and using the laws and the ideas of what is right against your, your enemies. Now, in the case of going against Britain, this would work uh, because the British are heavily influenced by law and all that stuff. But uh, if we're going against, uh, let's say, ISIS okay, today, you're going to protest what ISIS is doing in, in your region, if they're in your region, like Syria, uh, that's not going to work out too well because they don't care about the law and they don't care, they don't have any qualms about going and slaughtering hundreds, thousands, millions of people. Uh, so you got to choose kind of your battles on this nonviolent stuff uh, and figure out where it's going to work best because it might not work best in all scenarios. Um, but uh, he comes up with this philosophy and he starts to, to influence the movements in the 20s and 30s after he comes back to, to India in 1915. And uh, again, the, the masses have a huge appeal to what he's saying and the ideas of equality and he even... Uh, at times advocates getting rid of the caste system. Uh, there are some debates on how much he actually wanted to do that, and I'm not an expert on that stuff, so we're not going to go too much into that because uh, there are some controversial things with, with Gandhi that he does. Um, we're not going to go into them here, uh, but uh, we're going to kind of just keep looking at him as this figure that unites India to um, push against the British and eventually get their independence. So... Um, he pushes for this independence, and he actually does it in a couple of maybe weird ways um, that are different, but that allow this to happen again. He rose up the Dalits class. Uh, he organized women to help spin clothes and do stuff like that. Uh, but he didn't want to see a modernization of India. He wanted to see it kind of stay back in the olden days. He's uh, wanted to see India go back to how it was before the British came and and things like that. He wanted a simpler life. That's not going to happen, unfortunately for him. But um, he pushes that. And uh, Gandhi's ideas get um, adopted by Nehru, who's the leader of the Indian National Congress, or one of the leaders in it. And 
um, he uh, is going to help bring him in and really utilize Gandhi and his movements uh, or his power to help galvanize the movement against the British and get independence. But he doesn't see things the same way. He wants to see a modernization of India. He wants to see India come powerful and rival the Western nations. And um, he doesn't necessarily want to help the Dalits and help women because he's more into the old way of thinking about the social classes and social structures. And at times, uh, we're going to see him not necessarily want to work with the Muslims while Gandhi is more than happy to work with them and seeing that they're all people. And we'll see Gandhi go on hunger strikes and stuff like that to uh, really try to bring the people together, especially uh, try to end violence that's going on. Now, uh, the Muslim League, who joins in with this and is another major uh, player in this, um, is led by a guy named Gina. Um, and he wants to, in this process, as the as an independent India is looking like it's going to be possible, he wants to see a separate country for India, uh, or India to be separated into separate countries. Uh, one that is for the Hindus, one that is for the Muslims. Because India was and would be, I think today, if you had all of India that was under British control, um, if you had that all as one country, it would be the largest Muslim nation. But the Muslims would be the minority group because they are dwarfed by how many Hindus there are. So uh, Gina says, you know what? We need our own country that can be based on our values. And so that's where we get Pakistan and also Bangladesh. Bangladesh wasn't originally created for that. Uh, it was actually part of Pakistan. But <clears throat> uh, Pakistan was divided between East and West. And the Western Pakistan that we know of Pakistan today didn't really do much to help the eastern Pakistan, so they broke away and became Bangladesh. And um, he's going to push for this partition, and after uh, they successfully get there, or the British are going to grant them independence. Once they get there, the British are going to say, yes, we are going to um, make a partition in India, and uh, there's going to be Pakistan and uh, um, India. Uh, like we see today. Now, this is going to cause some long-term issues because uh, under this partition, hundreds of thousands uh, of Indians uh, in Pakistan uh, or Hindus in Pakistan will need to flee over to uh, India if they want to have political rights and stuff like that. Not that they don't have political rights in Pakistan, but they want to be under the influence of a of a um, of a government that's of similar ideas to them, and you're going to get Muslims that flee over to Pakistan to be in a uh, region where, again, Pakistan or uh, Islam has the influence on government. So uh, this is going to lead to, to millions dying uh, in the process and lots of heat attention between the two, and the new borders are going to cause problems. So, like, Kashmir is a, is a major issue, um, a region in north. Uh, Western India, northeastern Pakistan, that is fought over by the two, still two today, on whose region it should be. Um, we're not going to go into that whole controversy, uh, but um, about in this whole partition, about 12 million refugees migrated, and about 1 million died in this process. So that created heated tensions, and. Um, that's kind of the, it's a really brief version of the Indian independence movement. You can go to college and get whole, sem or not seminars, but whole years, semesters on spending on that. Um, so uh, that's just, kind of, again, a really brief overview. We didn't go into the major movements. Uh, I guess I should bring up some of those. 
uh, major protests. Uh, the biggest one being the salt tax or one of the most, uh, the salt march, uh, which was against the salt taxes. Uh, but that's one of the great examples of uh, Gandhi going against the British and that they marched to the sea, uh, took salt water, uh, uh, did the evaporation process to then get salt from it. And that was illegal, and so they got beaten up or thrown in jail. Uh, and Gandhi got thrown into jail multiple times uh, because of uh, things like that. Okay. Now, South Africa. I'm going to try to go quickly here because I noticed I'm at 20 minutes on this lecture, um, this podcast, and uh, we just have one section left to go, but I want to keep it shorter. So, uh, South Africa, if you remember, uh, is originally colonized not by the British, but by the Dutch um, as a colony to go around uh, the southern part of Africa and get to their colonies over in East uh, or Southeast Asia. And um, the British take it over, and the uh, you have some clashes between the Afrikaners, who are the Dutch and the British colonists, and uh, but the British always kind of put the foot down and um, will will take over uh, or will control it. Uh, but by 1910, they are granted their independence. Um, but the country is going to be controlled by a white um, uh, white minority group. So uh, this independence that we're going to talk about is actually not necessarily South Africa's independence, uh, early independence, because they're granted it by Britain because they're putting in control of Western Europeans. Um, but actually, sorry, I might have I might have kind of misspoke at the beginning of this podcast, and that we're talking about the movement in South Africa to gain essentially power over the Europeans uh, over the apartheid movement. So I didn't really make that clear. Uh, I think I actually probably set that up kind of wrong at the beginning. But um, so this is going to be more focusing on the apartheid movement, which is very much kind of an independence movement because it's finally the Africans getting their voice. But it's going to be. Oh, 70, 80 years where they finally get it after they got their independence from Britain. So, um, the whites are the minority group there. They're at like most 20% of the population, really less than 20% of the population. So, uh, they're a small group there. But, um, <coughs> but they, they get their independence and they've been trying to resist again. The Dutch there, who are known as the Boers or the Afrikaners, um, uh, really tried to resist and get independence earlier, didn't work through war, and then eventually the British were like, okay, well, we'll, we'll give it to you. Um, I don't know the whole situation around that. We're just going to kind of move on from that. But they get their independence. That's the big thing to know. And uh, in this new government, the blacks have no, no voice. The Africans have no voice. Um, it's just the British settlers that went there and the Boers or Afrikaners, the, the Dutch um, descendants. And... Uh, we see some modernization here, uh, just like in uh, India, there is modernization that has happened that the British have helped uh, do. Uh, but the main areas we see modernization uh, is just is not all over the place. Uh, we see it in their gold and diamonds, so precious metals and precious gemstones. Um, this is where you get the whole diamonds are a super important thing. Um, yeah, I won't go into a spiel on the diamonds and stuff like that. Sorry, but uh, you get you get. Uh, mass production in those areas. You also get it in steel, uh, you get in some chemicals and uh, rubber making process. So you you have modernization there. It's not uh, maybe as modernized as Europe is itself, but uh, this is one of the more modernized nations in Africa, especially at the time. 
Now, uh, this is because there's extensive foreign investments, again, from Britain, but also from other European region, or nations. And um, the, the blacks in this case were not, or the Africans were not um, part of these businesses. It was all done, this, all this investment and everything else went to the whites. And so they had to work in those businesses in poor conditions. Uh, again, it's kind of like the lower classes that we saw in the industrialization. They're doing the, the terrible jobs. They're the ones in the mine doing the dangerous stuff or, or in the steel factory doing, again, dangerous things. And uh, to solidify their power, uh, the whites, to solidify their power in the region, um, they, in 1948, solidify a system known as apartheid. It was going on before then, but they established it as law in 1948, separating blacks and colored people. Uh, we can say, uh, or sorry, separating whites and colored people. Uh, blacks, Indians, any other groups, minority groups, were separated from the whites, and they had to go to specific regions and live in those regions, and then they couldn't get married with uh, white people. There couldn't be any interracial, interracial things going on. Um, you have just a lot of that kind of stuff going on here, uh, like we see in the Jim Crow South in the United States, uh, limiting what they can do, when they can move. Uh, they have to have a card with them or an ID with them, showing them that they can move. They have to have permission for that stuff. Um, so uh, pretty bad and really uh, unfair treatment going on here. Um, and the the Africans realize that this is a problem. Uh, and the, or I should even just say the coloreds. Uh, they, they all recognize that this is a problem in... Um, maybe I shouldn't say coloreds. I apologize if that seems... Uh, racist in some way or anything like that. That's not my intention with this, but that was the label that was given to them. So the, the colored people in South Africa are realize they need to resist this. And so we see movements start, uh, and even before this whole apartheid thing became uh, the, the, the law. Uh, in 1912, the African National Congress is established uh, to fight this. Uh, again, that's why... Uh, um, Gandhi went there uh, as a uh, to to help uh, fight the injustice that was going on, um, but this is the the elites in um, in South Africa that are organizing this very much similar to how we saw the Indian National Congress formed originally, and um, they're going to organize uh, movements to to push against this. But really, it's not going to be until much later that we see this being uh, significantly effective. Uh, but they, they appeal to liberalism, they appeal to Christianity and, and those ideas that people are equal, uh, everyone should have equal rights, uh, it shouldn't matter what your race is or anything like that. Uh, but they also denied uh, women full participation until after 1943, and um, then they started using union strikes and boycotts to really try to get the message across that they're not going to play ball. Um, and then uh, they... We'll try other peaceful protests. So the ideas of Gandhi um, make their way in here. So there's nonviolent things. Again, there's that connection between India and, and South Africa here. Uh, but they, they see this as a way to go. And so uh, you see them uh, resisting using their passes. Um, but nothing really works effectively here early on. And this is the 1940s that we're in. By the 1950s, you get a younger generation trying to do this. And... <clears throat> one of their major people that you'll see is a guy named Nelson Mandela, uh, who's going to be a huge deal as we go through this. He's going to be one of the major leaders. Um, 
and he's going to push to use Gandhi's techniques. Uh, but uh, this is not going to be... Um, they're going to see similar experiences to violent clashes with the Afrikaners, so the whites, uh, in that they're going to use violence. The Afrikaners are going to use violence against the Africans, and about 60 people will, will die uh, in some of the early um, some of the early pushes in nonviolence uh, under Mandela and um, others in the African National Congress. Uh, and their resistance to the white government is going to get that organization banned. And uh, it's going to get Nelson Mandela and other leaders of that put in prison. And so he's going to stay in prison, Mandela, for I think 27 years is is how long he's there. Um, I think. I, I don't think I have, I don't have a specific number there. But he's in prison for a good long time. And... Um, People start seeing that this isn't working, this nonviolence isn't working, so they get frustrated, and so you get some more violent movements coming up, um, and uh, that's kind of known as the Black Conscious Movement, and they uh, take more extreme measures and, and do some fighting and, and really resist, uh, not just through nonviolent protests, and, and this is more young people getting frustrated with the system that's going on, and so they try to push more um, with that, and women get more involved in that system. And what eventually happens is after we're going to kind of jump from the 50s, 60s or so to more of the present here, um, what happens is the, the global stage starts to look at this and although they could turn a blind eye before, they go, okay, this is not, this is getting bad. Uh, these people really should have rights and we're getting into the 80s now where you still got all this stuff going on. And so... Um, there's just a lot of international pushback, just like we saw with the decolonization through the UN and, and the US and, and, and the Soviet Union. And so uh, eventually, <coughs> sorry, uh, South Africa has to, um, has to give in. Uh, they couldn't get the Olympics. Uh, they weren't getting investments anymore. Sanctions were being put on them to change their, their system. And so when you start hitting them in the pocketbook, they go, okay, you know what? Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to fix things here. And so they started to reassess it in the in the 80s, um, and slowly repealed apartheid. By the time they finally got to the 90s, uh, this led to people like Mandela getting um, uh, released from prison, and other leaders that were uh, were fighting against uh, apartheid uh, getting released. And in 94, uh, the African National Congress uh, will win a majority of the seats in government. And Mandela will win the presidency. So in the first election where blacks can vote, um, or the the colored minority can vote, um, they will take huge majorities because they're the majority of the population. So that's naturally going to happen uh, as long as they go and, and, and fight for that. So um, Mandela will win, and um, it's not an easy transition uh, between the whites giving up the power and the uh, the African National Congress and the colored people in Africa gaining the power, taking over the power. But uh, we see a, a great uh, step by Mandela in trying to mend that, uh, mend those wounds between the two sides uh, with his presidency. Um, and that's why he's, he's, he's known so much for what he did uh, with this and how he handled things. Uh, he's one of the great leaders in this. If we talk about the, the great leaders of this, you got Gandhi, who we just talked about earlier. Uh, you got Mandela, and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is another one of those. So um, it's not an easy transition, but it does, uh, it does happen uh, over time. And you can see things 
mending today, getting better, uh, but there are still issues if we look at South Africa, especially with racism and stuff like that going on. That stuff just doesn't disappear after being integrated for so long. And um, so uh, that's kind of the, the two movements in a nutshell. Um, as kind of a, a comparison, South Africa is a little bit different in that it's uh, moving to actually gain rights uh, and, and push down the uh, oppressive European settlers that were there, whereas India is gaining independence. Uh, if we talk about the rest of Africa just briefly here, I know I'm at over 30 minutes on this podcast, so I apologize for this one being so long. But um, if we talk about the rest of Africa and the Middle East, uh, you have some protest movements that will go on, um, especially in, in the African nations. And the Europeans, in some cases, like Kenya and Algeria, will violently uh, resist that or will fight the resistance, uh, but will eventually give in. Uh, in others, you'll have light protests, um, and uh, the British or the Europeans will go, okay, you know what, we'll grant you that. Uh, and they pretty much, in all those cases, just set them loose. Uh, in some cases, there's a lot of... Um, Africans there that have European and Western educated minds and so that's really good uh, and they can take over the government and and it, those democratic governments hopefully get the things going uh, but in some cases you don't have many educated people at all if we talk about the Belgian Congo I mean we're talking about uh, less university educated people in Africa with experience on government or anything like that than I can count on two hands um, so it, it, it's really bad in that case. And so that's going to lead to problems when these these regions get independence. Um, and so what we see is a struggle throughout most of Africa uh, for democracies. Uh, a lot of them turn over to dictatorships. If we talk about the Congo, uh, where the U.S. gets involved and, and gets rid of that democratic process by assassinating their president, um, it then gets taken over by a dictator that the United States supports because, well, a dictator is easier to control than a democracy. And so we see a lot of this playing going on of pushing towards some dictatorships and stuff like that or, or lack of, um, yeah, democracy because some of this stuff's easier to uh, control for the Soviet Union or the Americans or, I mean, the, the democracies just aren't that strong and the connections to be able to have the people actually advocate for themselves and stuff like that or, or participate um, is difficult, especially in the Congo. I mean, it's, it's, it's a country full of, of jungle uh, you got the, it, so connecting the people in the east to the people in the west is really difficult and the, the structures weren't really put in by the Europeans so uh, they got struggles over that there are struggles that happen with corruption because there aren't a lot of oversight so we just see a lot of issues in these and you're getting to today where you're starting to see some major changes and improvements but there are still ghosts of this independence movement um, unfortunately because they weren't really set up to Run! It would have been nice to see the Europeans actually do a little bit to to help them out a little bit more and get them uh, moving. Uh, and also, I mean, it doesn't just have to be the Europeans. The Americans and the Soviets who were advocating for this could have done more to help and 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 push for democracy and push for uh, uh, a a successful nation instead of kind of what happens. So um, that's kind of the unfortunate thing there. Uh, but the other thing that happens with these things is those borders that are established under the uh, Europeans uh, will pretty much remain those borders, whether or not those are actually good borders to establish. And and that's also going to cause issues. That's going to lead to the genocides that we see in Rwanda and Darfur. Uh, it's going to lead to issues that we see currently going on in the Middle East. So um, 
they don't change the borders, and that's one of the 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 maybe really negative things that happen is those borders stay what they are, and they might have maybe there'd be less uh, corruption and issues if those didn't happen but that's just speculation there on that so we can't necessarily go with that would be better uh, but you can see how that might have fixed some of the issues you might not have the Hutus and the Tutsis going after each other in Rwanda uh, if they could have made here's a Tutsi nation here's a Rwanda nation or here's a Hutu nation um, that also could have led to more rivalries of them actually going and attacking each other in full-scale wars so uh, you have your um, downsides and upsides on both those uh, ideas there but um, yeah, the rest of Africa and the Middle East isn't necessarily like what we saw here with apartheid in South Africa because we're not going to see a lot of whites controlling the regions after independence. And India is a little bit different that it will actually be partitioned for that uh, to try to lessen those issues that would happen. So uh, that's decolonization in a nutshell. Next, we're going to look at what happens afterwards. And actually, so I've kind of jumped into that a little bit with some of my conversation here conversation here at the end. Uh, but we're going to go into more of that stuff here in, uh, on the next podcast.